All right, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Thank you so much for coming back and listening to another episode. I'm so glad to have you back, glad to have you here, and um, thank you for listening to the Ask Me Anything episode. I got a lot of uh, a lot of people sending messages saying it was a lot of fun. Everybody else just thought it was kind of a fun change of pace and kind of a way to uh, cover several different topics in a show. I know yeah, a lot of times here lately, We've just been doing one topic per show, but this was a way for us to mix it up a little bit and just kind of do things in a little bit more rapid succession. So I just want to thank you so much for that. I will warn you today, the sound quality is probably going to be a little bit different. My computer is, uh, (laughs) my computer is out of commission and I got to try to decide whether I need to fix it or just buy a new one. Not quite sure what to do yet. So I am recording on my phone and I do talk with my hands. So I apologize if the volume gets a little bit weird while I'm waving my hands around while I'm talking to you. But thanks for bearing with me when it comes to that. And so for today's episode, I wanted to cover just what's going on over the past couple of weeks with uh, this George Floyd situation, with the, the protests, the riots, the police brutality, the debating about racism, all of these things. I want to try to cover some of that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover that sort of in the same manner as the Ask Me Anything episode, except most of these questions uh, aren't necessarily questions that listeners have written in with, but they are questions that I see kind of asked on social media or just questions that I want to answer. So I'll kind of put it in that same format as the Ask Me Anything episode, but just to be upfront with you, um, these are questions that uh, I've just kind of written down to make sure that I cover everything and not necessarily questions that anybody has written in. But before we get started, I do want to talk to you about our sponsor for this episode, and that is Free Kingdom Clothing Company. They are a new clothing company. They make really cool shirts and pins and all kinds of different things that you can get. And like I said in the last episode, the thing that I really like about them is just the simplicity of it all, that it, everything is very simple. Uh, the the lines are just straight and even and it just looks like something that you could wear with anything. And it just adds that nice little touch, nice little bit of originality uh, that you can have some of these clothes that almost nobody else has yet. And you can be on the cutting edge of this new brand that I am so excited for and they're going to do so well. So make sure you check them out on Instagram at freekingdomcc. And you can go to their website at freekingdomclothingco.com. That's freekingdomclothingco.com. And their motto is free kingdom for the people or uh, also be free. And there is an extra E in parentheses after the the B-E. And their logo is this little B. And just a really cool logo. It's really neat that when people see that, they're going to ask you questions and you can you can tell them if you want to talk to them about it. Just say, hey, it means be free. It means I believe in freedom and I want to be free and I want you to be free as well. So a nice little conversation starter wrapped up in that. So make sure you check them out. Once again, that is Free Kingdom Clothing Company, Free Kingdom CC on Instagram and freekingdomclothingco.com. Thank you so much for checking them out. And uh, if you order anything from them, make sure you let them know that you heard about them from this podcast. Uh, I don't get any kind of kickback from that or anything like that, but it does let them know that they made a good choice by reaching out to us to uh, advertise on our show. And it just lets them know who they're reaching and just how many people they're reaching by advertising on this podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. Now, uh, let's get on to the hard stuff. This has been a uh, rough couple of weeks for our country, and there's been a lot of tension, and there's been a lot of talk about 
race and race relations in our country. And those are things that can make us uncomfortable. And those are things that can be difficult to talk about. And sometimes you can, you know, hurt somebody's feelings or upset them um, without meaning to. And I don't mean that necessarily in the, uh, you know, the, the triggered snowflake kind of feeling, but um, that there are things that people live through. And there are things that affect different kinds of people differently. And some people's lifestyles and some people's life experiences are different than yours and mine. So, you know, when it comes to those things, I really do want to try to be as sensitive and empathetic as possible, while at the same time, giving it to you straight and giving it to you the way that I see it. And talking about the way that I think a lot of these problems have originated in the way the way that we kind of go into some of these cycles to make some of these things worse. So uh, I do want to clarify at the very beginning, uh, I did not talk to Free Kingdom about this episode before I advertise. So just I don't know where their stances are on any of this stuff, but I just want to make it completely clear that uh, I'm only speaking for me, not speaking for any of our advertisers or anybody else related to the podcast or anybody I work for, anybody I'm related to, all that kind of stuff. Once again, I, I don't have notes. I'm going off the cuff. So if I say something wrong a little bit, just just give me some grace. And and I think most of you have been listening to this show long enough to know where my heart's at and kind of how I feel about a lot of these things. And we've, we've mentioned racism in the show several times before. And uh, so you know where I stand on a lot of those things. So uh, just keep that in mind as we talk about kind of some of these difficult topics. So just want to kind of walk through some of these questions, some of these topics, and just go through those uh, the best way that I possibly can. So I just want to start off with racism in general. What is it and where does it come from? And this episode is going to pair really well with the mob mentality episode. So if you haven't listened to that, that was an episode that we did just a, just a few episodes back. And to be honest with you, it's probably my favorite episode that we've done so far. And a lot of the things that we're seeing when it comes to these protests and when it comes to these discussions about race and all of this stuff we see the way that the group influences us in that. And it's really important that we talk about those things and that we learn as much about those things as we can so that we can hopefully keep an eye out for when the group is influencing us more so than we're just part of a group because this is how we really feel. So make sure you put that episode high on your list if you haven't listened to it yet, because I think that's going to tie in really well with this current episode. But uh, when it comes to that, one of the things that we talked about in the mob mentality episode in the very beginning was that Mob mentality was important. It was important for you to feel a group dynamic because way, way back when we were cavemen and when humans lived in the forest and everything out there was trying to kill us, it was important that you identified with your group and that you relied on that group for safety and that you helped each other out through those things. And so the kind of the root of seeing race as a person is if you see someone that looks different from your group there is going to be a little bit of a pause when your mind tries to register whether or not this person is a threat. Your brain is going to notice that some that this person looks differently than you, and there is going to be a brief pause that says, hey, wait a minute, is this person a threat to me? Is this person a danger to my property or my food or whatever I have? Because if you were to see someone from another tribe that doesn't look like you, then your base instincts are going to be worried about protecting you in that situation. So as the world has grown, or I guess as the human population has grown and the world has kind of shrunken in a sense, I guess, um, 
now we live around people all the time that look very different than we do. And they may have skin and they may have hair that's very different from us, but there's still going to be that little tiny bit of a survival instinct in our mind when we see someone that we don't recognize, when we see someone that looks very different from us, and it could be, again, their skin, their hair, the way they dress, whatever it is, that's going to cause your body and your survival instincts just to, to tick up just a little bit to make sure that you evaluate this person, you decide whether or not they are a threat to you. And oftentimes, because we live in a society that is so diverse, then the skin color may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you see someone, or it may, your survival instinct may breeze past that very quickly because you live in an area around a lot of different people that look differently than you. And so that doesn't worry you so much. But as, as Scott Adams has pointed out a lot on Twitter lately, these things don't ever completely go away. And so that doesn't mean that everyone is automatically racist or that everyone, you know, is automatically uh, distrusting of people who aren't like them or don't look like them. But it is important for us to realize that there is that little tiny bit of that buried deep down within us in our DNA and that that was something that originally was there to keep us safe. And so it's going, it's probably never going to completely go away. So once more, it's not a reason to dislike or distrust anybody who's not like you, but it is important that we admit that because when you see a lot of people talk about trying to go to some sort of colorless society, uh, a lot of times, you know, you see you know, a lot of your older conservatives kind of say that, you know, I don't see color, you know, I don't even notice this. And you just got to be honest and say, look, that's ridiculous. Look, your body is engineered, your mind is engineered to look around, to try to pick things up and decide what's a threat and what's not. And when you see someone that looks different than you, that is at least going to be taken into the equation and we have you know shortcuts built in so that when we see someone who is dressed a certain way or looks a certain way we make certain assumptions about them just to make sure that again that we're safe so if you work somewhere and everyone that you work with wears a certain uniform or wears certain clothes to work in and you see somebody who is not dressed for that part, you're going to give them a second glance and you're going to look at them and you're going to try to figure out what this person is doing there that doesn't belong. Um, you know, if you are in a very rough area of town, of town and you see someone who is dressed incredibly nice, uh, that's also going to give you reason to look again and to analyze this person a little bit further and to try to figure out, you know, what they're doing there and why they look out of place. So, you know, skin color factors into that, but there's so many more things than that. Uh, but it is important that we at least admit that that is going to be part of the picture that we see overall. And it's always going to be something that is in the back of our minds whenever we look at someone, especially if it's somebody that we, we don't know or we've never met before. Now, look, we bond with people over our shared experiences. And so if you go to church with people who look differently than you, if you work with people who look differently than you, um, if you live in a neighborhood or you live in a home with people that look differently than you, very quickly, you're going to gravitate toward the, the shared experiences that you have. And I think we all see this, that there are people that we are friends with that if you thought, you know, had I ever walked to this per up to this person on the street, I probably never would have spoken to them. But because we shared the same job, because we share a lot of these same memories, um, suddenly that gives us more things that we can unite around. And this gives us a, a great friendship that we can have with other people. But just wanted to make it clear up front. Look, this is never absolutely going to go away. This is something that is inside of us and it is something that you, you should move past and that we are very much able to move past. But there's always going to be that tiny little thing there where you are going to take someone's race into account if you've never seen them before or to, to size up whatever situation you're in. And that's just part of the cocktail that is our brains. And that's just the way it is. And um, like I said, most of us, 
uh, move past that very, very quickly. And there are only, a, I think, a small few people who are toxic enough that they let that dictate what they think about somebody or that they feed into a lot of those stereotypes that exist. So uh, since we know that people do see race, at least since we know that that is real, let's ask questions about systemic racism. Is that a real thing? Because that's something that we're hearing a lot about now, that it's not just about personal racism. It's not just about uh, what you the way that you view and you treat other people, but instead we're talking about a lot of these systems that need to be dismantled. And is that a real thing? And is that something that we need to talk about? And I think that this answer is really complicated and I may not be able to go into it as deeply as I'd like to today, but I do want to say that a lot of what we see, a lot of what happens and the way that things work in, in our society and in just about every society really, uh, is that things oftentimes are divided a lot more along class lines then they would be divided among other things such as religion and race and all of those things that I think that you're much more likely to have something in common with another person who may have a different skin color in your own class than you would with somebody who may have the same skin color as you, but who may be in a completely different class than you. I think that we are a lot more like along class lines than people want to talk about. And so when it comes to our justice system and when it comes to yeah, uh, you know, the economy and a lot of those things, life is harder on poor people. It is hard to be a poor person. And unfortunately, because the way that a lot of things have worked out and um, because of a lot of the cycles that we're going to mention a little bit here today, uh, just looking at the, the raw statistics, a lot of times black people are generally more poor than white people. And so when you say that poor people have it worse, then that is definitely going to affect a much larger percentage and a much larger chunk of the African-American population. And so when you get into the way that a lot of our government's policies and a lot of the, the judicial system and the way that a lot of this stuff is is really stacked up against poor people, just kind of by definition and, and just looking at the statistics alone, that is probably disproportionately going to affect black people in a lot of cases. So while I don't think that you know, that is necessarily what uh, the founders had in mind or, you know, what the people who wrote a lot of these laws, and a lot of these institutions, um, I don't necessarily think that that is what they had in mind, that they were going to go after a certain race of people. But again, we got to talk about the reality of the things that have happened. And in a lot of cases, that has really hurt black people more because of the way that these kind of things work out. And then unfortunately, because poor people have a larger tendency to commit crime and that means that the cops are going to focus disproportionately a lot of times on poor people, and that's going to upset poor people that they're getting harassed by the cops more often. And once again, you've got so much overlap between um, poverty and uh, the African-American community that a lot of times those kind of things are going to get blended together. And so when we talk about the way that cops look at poor people, that may very quickly transition over to the way that cops look at black people. And so unfortunately, when we talk about police brutality and those kind of things, um, once more, you're going to see that it's disproportionately probably going to affect the black community because of that. And that unfortunately, that makes things worse for them, which a lot of times encourages and causes even more crime, which is going to cause even more police brutality, which is going to cause even bigger issues. And um, th that is just going to be a cycle that's just going to, you know, like a, like a dog chasing its tail is just going to continue to grow and just snowball because of that. So I saw a clip this week uh, that had been 
clipped out from somewhere with an interview with Denzel Washington. And, you know, he said that someone had, you know, kind of asked him like, look, you know, is it the system or is it the choices that I'm making? You know, the best thing I can do is, is to choose not to feed into the system. And I'm uh, going to talk about that just a little bit later on in the podcast. But I thought that that was a really good take on it because a lot of times what you're seeing when we get divided up in a lot of these conversations is that you have people on the left talking about that this is a systemic problem and that we have to rebuild society and we have to rebuild all of the laws to fit this systemic problem. And then you've got conservatives kind of arguing that it's more of a cultural problem and that it's more that, that people just need to act better and people just need to follow the law and people need to focus on building their families up more and that kind of thing. And we get into this binary mode. And a lot of times the media really feeds into it as well, where we think that it has to be one or the other, when the reality is the best thing that we can do is to work on both of those things that we can work on building up communities that that need to have stronger communities um, that you can focus on hopefully trying to grow businesses in a lot of those areas and allowing people to become more self-sufficient and and not jumping in their way when it comes to those kind of things. And I'm going to talk about that in a couple of minutes as well. But uh, I do think that it's real. I do think that there's a little bit of culture that plays into that as well. And I'll, I'll mention in a few minutes how uh, I think that we are also making the culture worse with a lot of the things that are being done to try to help them. But I do want to say that when we talk about systemic racism, um, I don't think that it's this thing that you can just blame everything on. I don't think that it's some sort of catch all. And I don't think that if a lot of these uh, activist groups or a lot of, um, you know, certain political parties kind of had their way, I don't think that that's just going to fix everything. Um, But it is important that we talk about those things. And I think that when we have a lot of these conversations, it is really easy for us to get caught up in what we think is right. And we just think that people should do what's right. And we know what's right. We know racism is wrong. We know that you should be good to everybody. We know that cops shouldn't beat people up just for the fun of it. But a lot of times people don't necessarily act right. And even though they know what they should do, even though we know in most cases what right and wrong is, you know that you shouldn't harm another person, you shouldn't take their property, anything like that. What we really need to talk about is incentives because both the left and the right kind of get this idea like, you know, I wish people would just act the way that I want them to act and then everything would be fine. But we don't talk about the incentives in all of this. So you know, most of us have some good and some bad in us. And most of us, as as much as we like to be good people, as much as we try to be good people, we know that sometimes we're tempted to do the wrong thing. Sometimes we think about doing the wrong thing. Sometimes we think maybe I should just take a shortcut here and, and lie or cheat or steal or whatever. And then we begin to ask ourselves how easy it would be to do that. I think that's where incentives come in. You've got people, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, all along the spectrum, right? You could say, you know, Hitler is the worst of the worst. And then over on the the good side of the spectrum, you know, as as good as you can get, maybe is, you know, like Mr. Rogers or somebody like that. And most of us fall somewhere in between. But when you talk about incentives, when you talk about the way that people are incentivized to do the right thing, I think we can do a lot of things and change a lot of things that will make people more incentivized to do the right thing. And I think a lot of times the free market is the, the ultimate incentive for these kind of things and that you will treat other people well because it's essential to your business to do that. And it's essential to your livelihood to be good to other people and to treat other people well. And if you are a bad person, if you mistreat people, if you stereotype and discriminate against people, that word is going to get around and that's going to harm you. And I think that that kind of incentive is far more useful and far more healthy 
then it would be just to pass, simply pass another law. And that, you know, laws force people to do things that they may or may not want to do. But if you can incentivize them, then they choose to do that thing of their own will and they embrace it much more quickly. In the episode where I talked about how a, a free society would have stopped the pandemic, you know, we talked about if there were no laws against discrimination, this country that this the federal government had runaway slave laws the, the federal government um enforced and a lot of the state governments had jim crow laws and the, the government was the one telling you that you had to discriminate against these people and that you weren't allowed to let them shop in your store at certain times and you weren't allowed to let them sit in certain seats on the bus and all of these things are happening and then suddenly with the flip of a switch all of these people that they've engineered basically to be racist because of the way that the rules were and the way that the laws were written, now suddenly at the flip of a switch, you're telling them that they're not supposed to be that way anymore and um, that they're not allowed to do that. And now that they're forced to deal with people that yesterday before the law passed, they were told that these people were, were bad and, and were not good enough to be spending time with them and sitting next to them on the bus. And now you're telling them they have to. So I think that in that way, you're going to cause confusion with people and you're going to cause even more issues. And so if we can incentivize people just to work together on their own and you can incentivize people to work together because it's the right thing to do and not just because it's the law, uh, you're going to have much more organic relationships. And I think that uh, th that little bit of racism that is left over in a lot of people in our country, that those things would go away much more quickly because people would be having positive experiences with people who are different than them um, and they wouldn't just be looking at them as uh, someone who you know is in a different class, or they wouldn't just be looking at them as someone who is is paying taxes to support someone else or something like that. That that can cause ill feelings between people. When in the opposite sense, you know, if you're shopping at a business with somebody, you're exchanging money for a service, or you're exchanging money for a good, and you're happy to be doing that because you get what you want, they get what they want, and both of you are happy. And that's going to cause you to work together much more and um, to to break down, I think, a lot of those other barriers that are out there. So moving on, obviously, we are talking about this topic because of what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd last week. And so, you know, most of you, any of you who are listening to this podcast as it's current know exactly what happened. If you are from the future and you're in a time machine and you're going back listening to this episode because you love the future episodes of this podcast and you're going back to check out the backed episodes or in case you're from another country and haven't heard about it yet or whatever that is, um, George Floyd was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he uh, apparently tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill and the cashier called the police on him. The police showed up. They tried to handcuff him and take him in. And I guess there was at least a little bit of a struggle there. And then he said that he was claustrophobic and fell down and went limp and, you know, wouldn't get into the car. And so I guess eventually I think they did get him into the car. And for whatever reason, they pulled him back out. And at this point, the police officers put him in a sort of chokehold. And that's where you get a lot of this video and you get some different pictures and there are four cops there and you've got three on his back and one standing guard. And the one of them that was on his back, the guy's last name was Chauvin. I think it was Derek Chauvin was the, the cop's name, uh, had his knee on George Floyd's throat and George Floyd is saying that he can't breathe. He's asking the officer to, to please let him up, that he can't breathe. The other two guys are on his back as well, holding him down, making sure that he can't move. He, You hear him gasping for air. You hear him trying to talk, and his voice is incredibly raspy because he's, he's not getting much air. And um, 
crowd is starting to yell, you know, you need to let this guy up. You're going to kill him. He can't breathe. You need to do something. You need to stop. And instead, the fourth off police officer just stands guard right in front of them, makes sure that nobody else is able to come close and intervene. And uh, for eight minutes, and I think it was like eight minutes and 46 seconds or something like that, they stood on this guy's neck basically and to, until he suffocated and it looked like he went unconscious for the last two minutes of that so he was probably dead before they ever got off of him and um this has sparked uh, tons of protests and tons of outrage uh, all across the country and it, the protests and riots started in minneapolis but very quickly they spread to a lot of other cities because we have this kind of ongoing conversation or this ongoing problem of police brutality uh, seems to be especially against um, unarmed black males. And so once more, you see a guy who was handcuffed, who was probably not able to hurt anybody anyway at that point. And instead, they restrained him until until he died. And so a lot of people are obviously upset about this. And I think what's happening here, I think the, the reason that we see this sort of brutality, and, and you see this among a lot of like I also see this among a lot of like conservative gun owners and those types of people where uh, you see the meme shared on Facebook sometimes of when you hear an intruder breaking into your house and you see a picture of somebody who is excited and happy because they've got their gun and they're ready to defend themselves. And there's this kind of thing that resides within a lot of people where we almost get excited to be the ones to administer justice. And that when it comes to this home invader, this burglar that's that's breaking into your home, if you are excited that you get to go bring justice to that person, that you're excited that you get to go downstairs and, and shoot them and kill them and that they're not going to leave your home alive, um, that's not the way that our legal system is supposed to work. You know, you've heard me talk plenty of times before. I believe in defending your life, defending your property. Uh, we talked about Ahmad Arbery in the uh, Ask Me Anything episode, and you know, I, I gave my stance on that. And I think that that's certainly uh, a reasonable thing to do if you have to do it. But when you see that some people almost seem to be excited uh, that they get to be judge, jury, and executioner for this person who has done something wrong, that's a little concerning to me. And I think that that's what we see as well when it comes to a lot of these cops. And the cops are upset that someone has resisted them. They're upset that this person has disobeyed their commands. They are upset, you know, maybe already just looking at the type of person that they are, that they're upset that these type of people tend to give them problems. And so what I think happened when it came to this George Floyd thing, I, what was going through Derek Chauvin's mind, in my opinion, wasn't so much that he was doing this because this guy was black. But I think he was doing it because he was putting this guy in his place, that he was going to teach this guy a lesson that, that this guy who resisted him was going to pay and was going to suffer the consequences of giving that police officer any attitude or giving him any lip. And so you may have been pushing back on me. You may have, um, you know, pretended to have some sort of claustrophobic fit. You may have acted like you were worried or scared or whatever, but now I am going to show you who's in charge. That that police officer is saying, in this moment, I am God, I am the law, and you are going to suffer because you defied me. And I really think that that's what it was. I really think that that's what happened here and what happens in so many other places is just the same way that I talked about my concern for um, you know people who might be gun owners who might be so excited to to bring this person to their final judgment, um, 
that I think that we see this with the police as well and that they have this desire to throw their weight around because they can and they're going to make you pay for your defiance. And I think that that's what happened here. I think that's what's happening in a lot of these cases um, where they're using chokeholds and where they're, they're using unnecessary force. And it's it, a lot of times it's because they can. And I think that that's causing it even more so than racism. Um, but of course, then we are talking about these cycles and the, the things that, you know, kind of incentivize people to do these things. And I think a lot of times they come into a lot of these poor black neighborhoods and, and they act like this and they throw their weight around. And so then obviously people in the neighborhood don't like the cops and they don't want the cops around. So when they're very un, unhappy to see the cops and they hate the cops, they're going to be more prone to giving them attitude and, and, fighting back and resisting against them, which is going to make the cops more angry the next time they come in. And this problem is continually making itself worse and worse and worse. However, going back to, like we talked about incentives, unfortunately, there is no incentive for the police to do the right thing. If they want to do the right thing, they can, but it's because they have chosen to do the right thing. But on the other side, if they use an improper method, if they kill somebody accidentally or on purpose, uh, if they hurt somebody too bad, if they destroy too much property, any of those kind of things, unfortunately, there is no incentive for them to pay for what they've done. There is no punishment for them doing something wrong. And the reason behind that is, is this idea called qualified immunity. And uh, this has been around for a while. There were two court cases, if I remember correctly, it was 1976 and 1982 that really solidified a lot of these things. And what that means, what it means basically is that uh, if a government official and usually, you know, especially in this conversation, we're talking about police, uh, if someone who works for the government breaks a law or does something that violates the Constitution, but they did it. With good intentions, uh, they, they did it because they were trying to get a job done. Um, then basically the ends justifies the means there. And it doesn't matter necessarily if they broke the law or if they, they hurt somebody. They are immune from prosecution and from civil suits. So they can't be sued either because uh, they've done that thing. What we see is uh, there's been tons of tons of different cases. You can go through plenty of these, but there was one where they were chasing, I think it was in Philadelphia, if I remember correctly, they were chasing like a robbery suspect or something like that. And uh, he went and hid in these apartments and they basically ended up bombing the entire apartment complex and, and blew up all of these apartments trying to catch this one guy who was a was on the run for something. But you know they destroyed all of these homes because of that. And because... They were just trying to catch a criminal. They were immune from being prosecuted or being sued over any of that. There was another case um, that was mentioned, a couple cases mentioned in one of the Cato Institute podcasts where they were executing a search warrant and they were searching for you know drugs or illegal guns or something like that. And they're searching this guy's property and they come across, one of the cops comes across a collection of gold coins that was worth like $225,000. And the cop actually took those coins and stole them for himself. And uh, when they, you know, the guy tried to take action to, to get his stuff back, to get his gold back, what the court said was that because of the way qualified immunity works, if there are no other prior cases, so they're looking at case law, if there's no prior case where the cop was found guilty in those exact circumstances, then they cannot be held liable that, that they knew that that was wrong. 
So in this case, there was no other court case on the books where a guy stole a quarter million dollars worth of gold coins. So because that had never been proven wrong before, then this cop managed to get away with that. Uh, there was another one where uh, there was a, a family having like a cookout or a family reunion or something like that at a swimming pool. And there were some people roughhousing and they were fighting and um, the somebody called the cops because these people were fighting. So the cops show up and the whole family tells them, hey, we were just roughhousing. We were just playing rough. Um, we weren't really fighting. There was no real altercation. Everything's fine. And so that you would think that that would have been the end of it. But the cops still wanting to question some of these people and they're questioning this woman. And while they're talking to her, uh, one of her younger children is trying to get her attention because they want something or they need something, you know, how kids are. And so this woman being a mother says, Hey, you know, sorry, officer, I got to take care of this with my kid. You need to, you know, to let me go take care of my child. And the cop says, no, you can't leave. I'm not done questioning you. And she tries to, to walk away and tries to take care of her kid anyway. And the cop ends up picking her up and body slamming her into the concrete. And once more, because there was no case law saying that a police officer at a swimming pool is not allowed to pick up a woman in her bathing suit and slam her into the concrete because of uh, a misunderstanding about roughhousing, the officers were able to get away with that. And so what happens in a lot of these qualified immunity cases is they are looking at uh, a lot of times they skip right over the constitutional requirement that comes along with that. And so if there's no court case that's ever proven that these exact circumstances are wrong, then it kind of gets deferred to the police department and the police department, uh, somebody in charge there. I don't know if it's a, the chief or the supervisor, or the trainer, exactly how that works, but they have to decide whether or not this person violated their training. You know, if they did something that they knew was wrong in whatever wrong act that they did, uh, whatever the act in question is. And so there are really no incentives here for them to, to do the right thing. Because one, if you're a supervisor and you are admitting that somebody under your command um, broke rules and, and broke the requirements of their training, well, that makes you look kind of bad as a supervisor, right? And, uh, you know, also if anything comes of it, it makes your department look bad. And that could, you know, hurt your funding or anything like that as well. So uh, that's no good. There's no incentive for them to do that. And a lot of times what they even do in the hardest cases is they simply say, well, I don't know what the officer was thinking at the time he did that. So you even have the supervisor deferring back to the officer who is in question when it comes to that situation. So, of course, uh, if you say, you know, I don't know what he was thinking, maybe he feared for his life. And that's why, you know, he shot first and asked questions later. Well, then they're just off the hook for that and they're allowed to do that. And so there is absolutely no incentive for police to do the right thing when they investigate themselves for this. And the officers absolutely know this. And then on top of that, you've got police unions who stick up for their their officers, the members of their union. And the truth is, that's what unions do. You know, a lot of people on the left are very pro-union and are, and are all about the unions, you know, the rights and their, the need for unions to protect the workers. Um, but when it comes to these police cases, you've got to be consistent here. Look, the police union's job, the reason they collect union dues is to protect the union workers, the police officers. So if a police officer loses his job, the union is going to do everything they can to help him get his job back because that's what the people pay their union dues for. 
If a cop does something wrong, if he does something that seems egregious or whatever, and the union just leaves him hanging out to dry so that he can be prosecuted or fired or whatever it is, well, they're not doing a very good job as a union, are they? Then suddenly you might people might start asking, well, what do we have a union for if they're not going to protect us? So the union is incentivized to take care of these officers and take out for them. Uh, there are a lot of rules on whether or not you are allowed to look into their past history and the other um, you know, kind of run-ins or, or write-ups that this person may have had before. Sometimes you're only allowed to look at that situation and nothing that this guy's done before. So this guy could be trouble on top of trouble on top of trouble. And because you're only allowed to look at that one situation, um, you know, maybe he gets away with it and then he's able to get away with the next one because you aren't even allowed to talk about what happened the last time. So uh, those are huge problems. And, and because of that, the police have absolutely no incentive to do the right thing here. And on top of that, we will talk about what uh, my friend Leonidas Johnson always brings up, which is the availability heuristic. And uh, what that means basically is that the more often that you see something, the more common you're going to think that that thing is, whether or not that is actually the case. So every time someone attacks a police officer, every time someone you know kills a police officer, a police officer dies in the line of duty, it gets coverage on the news. The media brings it up. And so it gives us this feeling that cops really are in constant danger and that being a police officer is a very dangerous job and that this thing, um, that these people go to work and they risk their lives every day. And um, a lot of times it kind of gets repeated within the, the police culture that there is a war on cops and that they have to watch their back at all times. And so what this does is this leads them to fairly or unfairly, uh, fear for their lives. And so when they see someone reach in their pocket, maybe it's to get a wallet, maybe it's to get a gun, they're immediately going to assume the worst and they're going to be able to shoot first and ask questions later. And then knowing that because of the qualified immunity laws, it's, it's ultimately going to get, get sent back to their judgment and say, you know, well, I feared for my life. So obviously I was right to defend myself with lethal force, whether or not the real circumstances actually warranted something like that. So Cops have absolutely no incentive to do the right thing in those types of situations, and they know it. And so they can crack down on people absolutely as hard as they want to. And that's got to be a, a big thing. Like I said, you know, sometimes I understand that sometimes people can treat cops poorly. I understand that sometimes they are in danger. Um, the truth is it's not nearly as dangerous a job as you would think. You're actually in a lot more danger as a pizza delivery guy than you are um, a police officer. But because we don't see it on the news every time a delivery guy gets hurt, um, that narrative isn't the one that's out there, you know, instead we believe that police are, are probably in a lot more danger than they actually are. Not to say that things don't happen every once in a while. Um, not to say that, you know, things can't blow up and get out of control, but it is to say that their, their idea of what kind of danger they're in is, is very much exaggerated. So now that we've seen this, now that we've seen the pattern going on over and over and over again, and it seems to happen constantly and talked about how there seems to be this issue with police brutality, especially toward black men, um, we see protests and these protests have erupted and a lot of them have turned into riots. And we've seen a lot of different videos, a lot of really confusing things of either, you know, cops starting the violence first, or you see someone that doesn't look like they belong at an otherwise peaceful protest and they're trying to get people riled up and try to get people throwing bricks and breaking things and hurting people. Um, we see cops that seem to be starting a lot of the violence. You see other people who don't look like they belong in the rest of these groups who seem to be starting violence. And we have these pallets of bricks that seem to just magically be appearing wherever there is a protest. And it's really hard to decide what to believe. It's really hard to figure out what's true and what is just a setup to make the other group look bad. 
Um, there are a couple theories going around about this. I've heard George Soros mentioned a lot. Uh, Chris Ann Hall brought it up with him that uh, he had funded the uh, Rwandan civil war and the, the, a lot of the civil unrest that was in Rwanda in the 90s. And um, that it's possible that the same thing is being done here by him. Honestly, I don't know. I don't really get into I don't want to say that it's not true because I honestly don't know. I haven't looked into it, but I don't really get into a lot of the conspiracy theory type stuff with these, you know, hidden backdoor uh, Illuminati, New World Order, the Masons, you know, whatever it is that's behind this. Um, I don't really buy into that a lot of times because oftentimes it's just very clear, clear to see that our own government does a lot of this stuff. Um, the CIA does these kind of things all the time when they want to destabilize another nation. And they want to try to cause a, a revolution in another nation. So it's very possible that uh, if that's something they're trying to do here to try to reach some of their goals, then it's very possible that our own government's doing it. It's also um, – look, we just live in an age where it's very easy, especially with the internet, to create a fake account and pretend that you're somebody in the enemy group and to do everything you can to make them look bad. And so uh, – there's no doubt in my mind that there are probably people who are conservatives who are dressed like Antifa, trying to make Antifa look bad. It's probably the other way around as well. You know, some of them are throwing on their MAGA hats and going out and, you know, trying to make the other side look more racist or whatever it is. Um, but the, the truth is we just have to be honest with ourselves and say we don't always know what we're looking at. And, um, you know, I would say in a lot of these cases, you see that the police are actually starting some of the violence before the protesters even get a chance to start. And, um, from a you know civil liberties standpoint, you know that's a huge red flag to me. That's a huge problem. But I guess on the other hand, you can kind of see that their tactic is probably to try to be the ones to come in and show the most violence first, so that hopefully they can squash down a lot of these protests before they turn into looting. And um, in some places, you know maybe that that has worked. And I don't know really what to say about that other than I can kind of understand what they're doing, probably from a tactical standpoint, but. Um, that doesn't make it any more right. Just like when we talk about uh, what motivates a lot of these political people that we talk about, uh, we say, you know, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean we agree with them, but you can at least see what they're trying to do. And so really no telling whether a lot of the police bringing that violence to the protesters has made things better or made it worse. Uh, one of the other questions and one of the other discussions I've seen come up a lot is the discussion of whether or not it is okay to riot and loot as a means of protest. And obviously being someone who believes in property rights and believing in peace, I, I think that you should never try to destroy or steal anybody else's property, which is which is pretty clear. And it's pretty easy to stand against that on its own. Um, but one of the other conversations that's coming up has been that the the riot is the voice of the unheard, that it's the language of people who um, are so angry that they don't have any other way to express themselves. And maybe they've tried to express themselves in other ways and it hasn't worked or it seems to have gone unheard. So now they're doing something big and drastic to get attention. And um, I've been chewing on this a little bit. I've really been thinking it over and thought maybe I'm, I think maybe I am willing to give a little bit of value to that thought. And what has kind of brought me around to this we tell even children sometimes, you know, if you're angry and you're so mad that you think that you're going to hurt somebody or you're going to destroy something, the best thing you can do is, you know, scream into a pillow or go out and fight the punching bag, you know, go out and, and hurt something or go out and, you know, do something to turn that negative emotional energy into some kind of physical energy that you can use. 
and uh, the, the, it kind of expels that and gets it out into the world and, and nothing is really damaged or nobody is hurt uh, because of that. And so I think if we say that to children or if, you know, maybe some of us as adults just have one of those days where you need to go out and you need to punch the punching bag or, you know, whatever it is that you do to try to ex exert some of that frustration, then maybe it is fair for us to say that if a group of people feels that much frustration and anger, um, then maybe it is at least within the conversation for them to go out and break something. Once more, I'm saying that this is, this is not ideal. This is not something that I am endorsing. Um, but I'm trying to at least just give a little bit of credit to the idea just to hopefully, um, help us to understand the whole thing better, uh, and, and to understand as well as we possibly can. So if you are, going to riot, if you do need to break something and destroy something and set something on fire to express your anger and to try to get some of that energy out so that no one gets hurt, um, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's okay, but let's just say that that is an option, that that is one thing that could happen out there. But I do believe that when that anger shifts from breaking a window or setting something on fire or flipping a car upside down or whatever it may be, when it shifts from that to looking inside for something that you can steal, something that does not belong to you that you can take home and use for yourself or sell for your own personal gain. You know, there was a sports bar that they that they looted and they tried to pull the safe uh, up off the floor. It was bolted to the floor, fortunately. I don't think anybody got away with it, but they tried to take all the money that was in that safe. When it switches from rioting to looting, I think that you have completely shifted away from someone who may have some sort of righteous anger to definitely a person who is just being opportunistic and is just being a bad person in that moment. So when it comes to that argument, I'm willing to at least give you enough room to say, maybe you do, maybe you do need to, to destroy something in order to feel better. But when it starts looting, you're just being opportunistic. You're just, it's just completely wrong. And, and when I was chewing on this and the reason that it kind of brought me around to maybe breaking something is, is, not necessarily okay, but it's at least understandable, is you've got to look at what is happening in a lot of these poor black communities and the way that they're being treated. We've talked about the way that they're being treated by the cops, but I think you also need to talk about the way that they're being treated by their local governments and by their city leaders. And, um, you know, I've mentioned before on this podcast that I think that a lot of the, the way that the welfare programs and those kind of things are set up actually hurt poor people a lot more than they help them. And in our episode called Dismantling Democrat Economics, we talked about how a lot of these things that they try to do to help these people just lead to inflation, which makes their money worth less, which means they, they can't go as far on a dollar and they were struggling already. And so I think when you look at what's happening to a lot of these poor black communities, especially, um, and once more, as I said before, um, the poor people are always going to get the worst of it, but because there's that overlap in the demographic, um, you know, a lot of times we're talking about places like Detroit or Ferguson or, um, you know, Minneapolis or whatever it is that a lot of the poorest, worst places in these cities, but you got to look at what these people are going through in their lives. And, you know, you think about it, you, you put a lot of these people in government housing, uh, which is not very good housing to say the least. Um, and they barely have enough money to, to keep their rent paid or, you know, having partial rent paid for them or whatever. Um, you give them food stamps. And so they have barely enough money to, to have food to eat. 
And then you give them public education, which a lot of times is woefully inadequate. And uh, no matter how much funding there is, the, or the schools are always underfunded and they never do well enough. Um, and so these people are getting a poor education. They already are stressed from living lives that are not good at home because they barely have enough to live off of. They barely have enough to eat. Then they put forth a welfare structure that incentivizes there to be uh, less breadwinners in the house. So it encourages the mom to kick the dad out of the house the first time that there's any kind of relationship trouble. So now uh, there's no more dads in these families. And so he's out of the picture and they're all being raised by single moms. And we see a lot of statistics of, of what happens to kids when they don't have a father in the house. And then you put that on top of the poor education they're receiving. And then it's hard to start businesses because licensure laws make it really difficult for people. If you want to braid hair, you want to cut hair, um, you know, you want to, to run some other sort of business. A lot of times the license keeps you from ever getting your foot in the door because you can barely afford to, to put food on the table as it is. And then you give them crappy health care on top of that. And then on top of all of those things. They raise the minimum wage up so that it's harder for someone in an entry-level position to even get a job. So now they've got a bad education. They cannot get a job. They're stuck living hand-to-mouth, and they can't do any better. And then by some grace, they actually do get a job, and they start to make a little bit of money on their own. The way that the welfare system is set up is it takes them out at the kneecaps as soon as they start to make a little bit of money. I had a friend once who got a 50-cent raise and caused his entire family to lose their health care. So once more, talking about incentives, if you're barely getting by as it is, and then you start working hard to try to work your way out of that and dig your way out of that hole and pick yourself up by the bootstraps, as conservatives like to say sometimes, and just as soon as you start to gain a little bit of headway, you lose your health care, you lose your all your food stamps, you lose all your housing assistance at once, and it kicks you right back down into the hole that you were in before. You realize that maybe you're better off just not working. And you put enough people into this cycle and you repeat it for generation to generation to generation. And the entire time you're threatening them, telling them that they better vote Democrat or they're going to lose what little assistance they have. A lot of times that assistance is what's keeping them down anyway. Not that they would be much better off without it, but it's certainly engineered to keep them that way. So that they can be bullied into voting a certain way. So when you take all those things into account, of course they're angry. And then we go back to what I've mentioned a couple of times before um, and mentioned in the test episode about mass shooting that Hannah Arendt has theory. And Hannah Arendt's theory said that the world was going to continue to get a lot more violent and you were going to see a lot more acts of violence because our society has grown so big that there's there's no one that we can hold responsible for a lot of these grievances that we have. That's just the way it is. There's no one you can go to to fight this. That's just the system. And so where you might see where a lot of white people get frustrated and perform some mass shooting somewhere. Maybe in the same instance, we're looking at a different group of people and it might cause rioting as an expression of that anger and frustration that's there. And so, again, I don't want to say, uh, you know, I don't want to come off with the uh, idea that, you know, it's okay to hurt anybody, that it's okay to destroy anybody's things or any of those things. But I just want to talk about when we try to look at why this happens, maybe we start to understand it a little bit better. And I think that when you take that anger and frustration and then you pair it with what the media is doing to this country, 
they're always trying to pit us against each other, that it's always left versus right. It's always white versus black. And that brings us back to the availability heuristic, which is really frustrating because it seems that when the media covers these police brutality stories and these police brutality killings, they only seem to really cover it and give it exposure when it's one specific type of situation. Because as we've talked about on the mob mentality episodes and several other different episodes that we know that people on the left are genuinely concerned with equality and race and sexuality and a lot of those things. Whereas people on the right are more concerned with hierarchy and order and the law. And we know how important it is when you're trying to bring someone around to your point of view or you're trying to help someone understand your point of view that we need to talk to them in their language. And instead, what the media does when they cover these cases is they only seem to bring the most attention to police brutality cases when the victim is an unarmed black male that has some sort of criminal history and usually has some sort of drugs in his system at the time that the incident has gone down. And you know me, I believe if you're a free person, you want to put whatever you want into your body, that's fine. Um, there are a lot of crimes out there that they'll put people away for, like drug crimes and that kind of thing that aren't hurting anybody at all, loose cigarettes, that kind of thing. You know, that kind of stuff is, is nobody's business but your own. But when we go back to what each side sees as most important, the media is only bringing attention to the stories when it is a story that divides people the most. Because when you talk about this type of situation, um, you know that the people on the left side of the spectrum are only going to see the person's race. And that's the only thing that matters. And then on the opposite side, you've got people on the right who find out that this person has a criminal history and who had drugs in their system. So that person doesn't matter. And so it sends out this message to the left that all cops are racist and that they're only doing this to African-Americans. And it sends the message to the right that if this happened to somebody, well, they probably deserved it. They were probably breaking the law. And the other cases of police brutality get completely ignored. A lot of you probably haven't even heard of Duncan Limp, who was a white guy who was shot in his sleep during a no-knock raid. There was Daniel Shaver, the guy who was drunk and terrified and begging for his life, that was uh, also a white guy that was killed in this hallway of a hotel a couple years ago. And it got some media coverage, but not nearly as much as it deserved. You got Breonna Taylor in Louisville, who was killed during a no-knock raid where they were at the wrong house. And the, the sub suspect had already been apprehended. And now her boyfriend is being charged for fighting back against what he thought were intruders in his home. It was the same thing. Uh, the, the, I, I apologize. The woman's name has slipped my mind. But um, there was the African-American woman who was playing video games with her nephew in the middle of the night. And the cop shot her through the window. And it gets mild coverage, but not much. And why is that? Because those kind of things don't divide us. Those kind of things are cut and dry. Those are the kind of things where all of us can agree that this is a huge, huge problem. 
And we would all band together and we would demand change if that were the case. If those were the ones that were being brought to our attention, we would all be in agreement. But instead, what happens is the media conditions the left to think that these things can only be a product of racism. And they condition the right to think that this can only be the result of somebody who was probably already a bad person in the first place. In that sense, there's there's no wonder a lot of times conservatives say, well, let's wait and hear the whole story. Because usually what they find out if the media is blowing it up is that this person's probably got a bunch of prior convictions and they may be on drugs or whatever it is. And again, those kind of things aren't necessarily a problem to me. I'm not trying to say that this person's life was worth any less. I'm not trying to say that George Floyd deserved what he got by any means because no one deserves that. But the media knows that those are the ones that keep us divided. And those are the ones that make us fight with each other as if this were a race issue. As if this were a respect issue for the police. When instead, this is plainly and simply a police brutality issue that we need to address as a country. And if we really do think that black lives matter, and we really do think that all lives matter, then we need to be giving all of these cases the respect they deserve and the attention they deserve and the change that they deserve. So at this point, you might be wondering, why did I do the Helter Skelter title for this episode? Uh, Was I just trying to be inflammatory? What was the issue here? Well, if you listen to last podcast on the left, that's one of my other favorite podcasts that is completely non-politically related. But uh, if you never listened to it before, it is definitely R-rated, definitely offensive. But what they do is they talk about a lot of different serial killers and conspiracy theories and that kind of thing. Um, And they, uh, most of them, especially on the uh, more well-known people, they do several parts several episodes uh, on one particular killer's story. And if you listen to their episode about Charles Manson, the way that they kind of portray it is that Charles Manson wasn't necessarily some guy who thought that he was a god and some guy who believed that he was something bigger than what he really was. Instead, Charles Manson was a swindler. Charles Manson was a small man who quickly learned that he may not be able to necessarily take up for himself physically, but if he can act crazy enough, if he can make his personality big enough, then it can help him get his way in life. And that that helps him through a lot of this life of crime that he had. And by the time that he starts this cult, it's not necessarily about the the grandiose of Charles Manson, the figure. But instead, like a lot of other young males, um, Charles Manson was just trying to get laid. And he saw this whole Manson family thing as a way to use that to get what he wanted. The whole thing about him being Jesus Christ, the whole thing about this impending race war and the, the helter-skelter race war that there was going to be and the Beatles sending him hidden messages, those were all just ways to keep people fixated on him so that they wouldn't be able to look around and see what's really going on. And meanwhile, he can get what he wants and he can have other people bring more girls into the group and he can get even more of that. And that that was what it was about for him. That it was never about the cult. It was never about the family. It was about Charles Manson fulfilling his own selfish desires. 
And at least the way that they kind of tell the story on last podcast on the left, it's almost as if the Sharon Tate murders kind of take off without Charles Manson. And, you know, we know that he didn't really participate in them. And of course, he was held responsible for uh, kind of facilitating those things. But the way that they describe it, it was as it was almost as if this simply just got out of hand and he had talked too much about this race war that was impending and um, that basically the family bought into it so well that they went ahead and started it without him. And that one minute he's just chasing women. And the next minute he's got a murder on his hands. And he's looking at spending the rest of his life in prison. And so when I compare this to what the corporate media is doing, it seems awfully similar. All this race war stuff, all of this racial tension, all of this white supremacy, those are just distractions from the things that we should really be worried about. As Tom Woods points out a lot of times, look, if this were a white supremacist nation, no one would ever deny being a white supremacist. People would be jumping on the bandwagon to become one if they knew that that's what it took to get them somewhere, right? No, nobody says that. Nobody thinks that. Instead, the media has driven us to this and they keep us focused on the wrong thing so that they can direct us and they can keep us distracted so that they can follow their own desires at controlling us and trying to push us and manipulate, manipulate us into thinking the way that they want us to think. And to make sure that we're too busy fighting with our neighbor to actually do anything worthwhile. Look, I know racism is out there. I know that there are sometimes things that happen or, or people that mistreat other people, but I have to tell you that I honestly believe that that is not the case with most people. Most people want to get along. Most people want to do right. And the ones that don't, they don't matter. The KKK, I mean, they've only got, what, a few thousand members in a country of 350 million people? They are insignificant. Those of you that are, are with me on the anti-war message of the show, you've heard me say before, so what if some guy in a turban is in a cave in Afghanistan somewhere and he hates America? It doesn't matter. He can hate us all he wants. He has no power and he is insignificant and there is nothing he can do. And so I will tell you the same thing. Maybe there is some guy sitting in his living room in a MAGA hat and he doesn't like some group of people because of the color of their skin. He is insignificant. He does not matter. The best way that we can defeat this, the best way that we can all win in this is to come together, stop fighting with each other, and instead look for the things that we have in common, look for ways that we can work together, that we can seek justice, that we can seek real justice, and we can seek fair justice for the right people, and stop chasing whatever war the media is trying to send us off on instead. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I had a few more things that I wanted to cover, but I think I'm running out of time. So uh, maybe we'll do another Ask Me Anything episode here in a week or two. If you have questions, if you have topics that you want me to cover, send those to me. You know where to reach me. I'm on Twitter at Garrett again, Facebook.com slash Garrett again, although Facebook's really upsetting me. I don't know how long I'm going to be on there. Also, uh, email Garrett again at PM.me. As always, Garrett just has one R. And until next time, Stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.